to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you are enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth with a goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. Please share any feedback you have and leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find the podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit austinarttalk.com on your computer to get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Austin Art Talk. Novelist Natalia Sylvester says of her most recent book, Everyone Knows You Go Home, she's writing for the people who have shared common experiences around immigration and know about being caught in between. These powerful and sometimes painful stories need to be out in the open so that the subjects and those like them know that what they went through has not gone unnoticed. But it's not just about the struggles. It's also the overlooked triumph, courage, strength, and ordinary moments of daily life that need to be recognized. I learned a lot from this conversation and had some aha moments that I feel somewhat naive for not having had before. But as much as I am motivated to produce and share these conversations for you, I want to have them in the first place to connect and grow as a person and come out of the shadows as an artist myself and figure out how to be a better human being. So we speak about her childhood, the craft of writing, both of Natalia's books, a few of the things she learned in 2017 listed in her yearly blog post, and some other very important and timely issues that I really enjoyed speaking with her about. Everyone Knows You Go Home is available now online and everywhere books are sold. As of March and April 2018, she is touring the U.S. on a book promotion tour, So check the schedule on her Facebook page and on this episode's webpage so you can get out and see her in person if possible. So here is Natalia. Hey Natalia, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I guess I'll start by saying or letting everyone know the reason we're here is because we met on an airplane like four years ago. It was, yeah. <laughs> when your first book came out, right? It was like right after that. It was right after I was on my way to the Miami Book Festival. Oh yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. And it, yeah, it was for my first book and we just sat, we ended up sitting next to each other and just yeah. chatting. And you gave me the card for the book and, and it's um, a great book. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I do want to talk about that. But I guess right now you're kind of in a whirlwind of activity because you just released your second book, right? Yeah, my second book, Everyone Knows You Go Home, came out on Tuesday. Oh, so wow. Just a couple of days ago. Yeah, and I'm really excited. I mean, I have the launch coming up here in Austin on the mm-hmm. 21st, Wednesday, and then we leave to Miami and then California, New York, just kind of will be all over the place. Like so. a book tour. Yeah, my book tour. Well, I guess with a lot of people, I usually try to start uh, by going back to the beginning, like when did you first realize that you wanted to be a writer? When did you start writing? Or just kind of any kind of creative inclinations you had as a kid? Like where did all that start? So I always say when I look back, it started when I started reading. Okay. And that for me was in first grade, I believe. I came to the US from Peru when I was four mm-hmm. and I didn't start learning English until kindergarten. And by the time I got to first grade, I spoke English, but um, reading became very hard for me mm. because I, I don't realize, I didn't realize until years later when you have, um, someone who's trying to learn to read and they have a first language, you should teach them first to read in their first language. Ah. And then, and then from there they can learn to read in their second language, which in my case was English. But I didn't do that because nobody really knew at yeah, the time. So right. they were trying to teach me to read in English, having just learned it. And it was difficult for me. I remember being put in the back of the classroom because I was behind. Oh, wow. And the teacher would send these cassette tapes and special notebooks home for me to do extra exercises with yeah. my mom at home. And and then one day, I, I don't know why, but it just clicked. And it was really exciting because mm. I, it, was, it had been so challenging to me that once suddenly I could read, it just felt like this whole world had opened up. Yeah. 
And so I became like this really voracious reader. One of the first books I fell in love with was Matilda by Roald Dahl. Yeah. And there's this chapter in which Matilda starts writing limericks. And so that's how I found out what a limerick is. And so I started writing limericks. Oh, wow. So that was actually my first time writing anything. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, in a creative way. And I just fell in love with it. And I remember always, you know, keeping journals, um, writing like stories and poems. And I remember when I was nine, I went to, I think we were like in JCPenney and we were at the checkout and there was this journal with a cat on it. <laughs> and we weren't the kind of family in which I could just randomly ask my mom, please buy me this because we couldn't often afford those kinds of yeah. things. But I remember that was the, you know, I, I really at the last minute, I was like, can, can you get this for me? And by some miracle, she said, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was, I just always remember that moment. And I was like, oh, I'm going to start writing in this. So and it was it a be, journal. It was a journal. And it became like this very daily habit that I started forming because I felt like even like before then I had gotten like diaries and things like that. But this was the first time I just, I decided, oh, I want this. And I'm going to nurture this. You chose it. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what clicked when you really were able to start reading well. You know, I don't know. I think that the same thing happened to me when I was learning English because my mom always says, and because I don't remember too much from mm -hmm. back then. I mean, I was five and six. But my mom always says that one day I just came home and just started speaking to her in English. <laughs> oh, wow. So I think when you're that age, things just do click oh. because you're just absorbing everything. You're like this sponge. And then one day it's just, hey, actually things are, you know, I, yeah. get, I, I get this. And that's kind of how it felt for me. Do you think it's like a development of kind of a confidence while you're developing the skill? Like it's kind of like one day you just realize, oh, I can actually do this. I've been able to do it for a while. I just didn't have the confidence to admit it or mm. share that with anyone. Maybe. I know the few classes I remember from when I was learning to speak English, I was oddly outspoken because the oh. teacher, and, which is so funny because I'm not, um, like a lot of people find that surprising. I remember the teacher always telling me to raise my hand because I would just shout out answers. I was always so excited to realize I had the answers. Oh. So maybe it is a, a bit of that, but I, I honestly wouldn't be able to tell you that I know completely. Yeah. I'm wondering in the dedication to your first book, you mentioned this teacher amy scott you said in the ninth grade she gave oh, you some yeah. advice is that that's part of this kind of beginning story i would guess right oh absolutely or did we skip over anything no i think yeah even going because she was my ninth grade teacher and even going from age nine to nine there's something between having written all your life or at least most of your life but then having someone in some way um, acknowledge it and tell you to keep going yeah and that's what my ninth grade teacher did and it was the first time anyone had done that for me because it was the last day of school and you know you say your goodbyes to your teachers and she told me never never stop writing mm. um, and it was really powerful for me because I had always been writing but I hadn't thought of it as something that I do and I had definitely not thought of myself as a writer it had just felt like something that I enjoyed but I couldn't really claim because you, you think of writers and you think of them as these, um, you know, you think of authors and you think of people who are famous or like who do Ernest it. Like Hemingway or something. Right. It's like, I'm not that. Right, exactly. Or people who, yeah, who achieved all this fame with it, managed to do it every day, like as a, you know, for a living. But the reality of most writers isn't that. But the one thing they have in common is that they write, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that became very powerful because then at that point I started more actively pursuing it, mostly in the form of journalism. Because when I was, uh, you know, in high school, 10th, 11th, 12th, I was always involved in journalism. And in the yearbook, I became mm -hmm. the editor there. And then when I went to college, I also became the editor of the newspaper. And it wasn't really until I remember one day I hadn't declared my major yet. And I'd always you know, assumed I was going to be a journalism major. And I was looking at all the pamphlets in sophomore year that they have at the different schools. And I noticed that the arts and science major had a um, creative writing track. I don't know why, but I'd never thought that that was something I could study or major in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, that exists. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, yeah, it was so fascinating to me. And I don't, there was this moment where I thought, you know, I'm just going to go for it. Because, and then I decided to minor in journalism as my more practical yeah backup plan. backup plan which is also like sadly funny and i say it in air quotes because it wasn't necessarily more practical at all because of the state of journalism sense yeah 
Um, it's not very stable and it's definitely not the field it used to be, especially when it comes to people wanting to make careers out of that. Yeah. And even when I was in college, my first job out of college was at a magazine. And I, I felt very lucky I got an, an editor position at a new magazine on Miami Beach. And mm-hmm. it was very glamorous and exciting for about six months. <laughs> and then it just all, you know, it folded. And I had, I kind of, I had to make a choice. Like I thought, well, I can keep trying to work full-time at at some sort of magazine or newspaper, or I could try to freelance because at least through working at the magazine, I'd made contacts within the local journalism industry. Mm -hmm. And that's what I decided to do mainly because I realized that in all that time I hadn't written any fiction. Mm. And my plan had always been to work in journalism and write fiction on the side. And I realized even in those short six months that I hadn't done that. And so I just kind of reassessed and reprioritized and decided, okay, I'm going to freelance and see how I get that working so that at least my time is my own and work on my fiction. And so that's what I did. And it it was definitely not without its challenges. I had a really good support system. You know, by then, my husband, although we were engaged at the time, we were living together. So there was a little less, you know, that financial pressure was at least cut in half and that Mm -hmm. we were sharing some of those responsibilities. And and I had, like I mentioned, plenty of contacts and, that I'd made already yeah. in the journalism industry. So I had a few gigs to start with, and then I kind of grew it from there. Yeah. I finished writing my first book. That was 2007. I finished writing my first book around 2010, and I started querying it to agents. And I signed with an agent yeah, in the beginning of 2010. And I was very excited because I thought... like. One of the things that they tell you in the industry is it's really hard to get an agent, which it really is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But because I had cleared that first hurdle, I just thought, well, that means everything's really going to come together. Yeah, it's just going to, it's all uphill now. (laughs) And it wasn't, I mean, she never, she she didn't sell that book. She went out and sent it to publishers. What they call it went out. Like when you go out on submission, they say, oh, we just went out. So she went out with that book and. I thought like, oh yes, next week I'm probably going to get the call from the publisher. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> could it, happen. Yeah, it didn't. Definitely didn't. And it was almost a year actually that it, we just we kept trying. And halfway through that year, she said to me, "You should start working on another book because if this one doesn't pan out, hopefully you have another one." Yeah. And Is this it, Chasing the Sun or another book before that? It was another book before Chasing oh, okay. the Sun. Yeah. And so, and the funny thing about Chasing the Sun, um, so I guess I have to backtrack a little. Chasing the Sun was actually my senior thesis when I was in college. At least that's how it started. So in junior and senior year, I had to write a thesis for my creative writing major. And it started out as a collection of short stories, and then it evolved into a novella. And so that was really where I first started writing Chasing the Sun. Hmm. But when I graduated, I kind of just tucked it away, and I felt like I wasn't ready to really make it the story it needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I started working on a whole new book. And that was the book that I got my agent with. That was the one she was trying to sell. And that was the one that didn't sell. And so when she told me, when my agent said, you know, you should start writing a new one, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) And it was actually my husband who said, you know, I think there's still something special in your thesis that you should try to, to see if you can bring out and I hadn't thought to do that at all. I just thought, no, that one's doomed. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. like a drawer story. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't. And, and, and admittedly, I rewrote pretty much all of it. I mm-hmm. think there were 2,000 words from my thesis that actually survived mm-hmm. into the final manuscript, which is something like 92,000 words. Yeah. But it became my first published novel. And she sold, you know, once... And it was, you know, these are always long processes, right? So this was... I think it sold in 2012, like late in that year. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then that it came out in 2014. Publishing yeah. takes a long time. It's a lot yeah. of patience required. So that actual first book, what happened to that? That's mm-hmm. just gone. It's gone. I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe one day, I always like to say maybe one day I'll become the writer that, that it needed to write it because I don't think it, I think I had a lot of really ambitious ideas, but I wasn't yet able to execute them the mm-hmm. way they needed to be. And in a way, I'm glad that it didn't get published because I read I, I read it back. And I think that this happens to any artist, really. But when you go back, you realize like it's a record of who you were back then. Yeah. And so you've grown as a person. I was maybe 22 when I was writing at 21, 22. I don't know. I just I have such different thoughts and ideas now. You know, every book is going to be that eventually. Right. You can only put out the best work that you can at that moment in time. But with that particular story, I'm, I think it, it taught me a lot about writing a book. And about the structure of a novel, because we'd never read, written novels in college. We mostly studied the craft of the short story. And then I wrote a novella, which is a much shorter 
version, but nobody ever really sat me down and said, well, here's how you write a novel because there's no one way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But at least for me, that first one became the way I learned how I write a novel. I'm I'm just wondering then, maybe you could tell me about what college was like. You know, going into college, maybe kind of where you saw your writing and then what you learned in college. And I mean, so you're saying in college, they don't really, in, in this creative writing course you took, they weren't talking about people becoming an, a book author. It was more, is it just about learning how to write? It's more the craft. And so I went to the University of Miami and I had a really wonderful mentor that I took several classes with and then she became my senior thesis advisor. Her mm-hmm. name's Evelina Galang. Yeah, we really would talk about craft and about, more importantly too with her, it was which story are you trying to tell? And mm-hmm. that was really powerful for me because growing up, you know, being an immigrant, being a Latina, I had always written stories when I was younger. When I look at the stories that I that I wrote as a child, most of them were stories that had kids' names like Jenny and Jimmy. And so I was really trying to write ah. this idea of what I thought real books are like. And because most of the books that I was reading at the time didn't look like me, it was more like, you yeah. know, white children who were native born in the US. And and so I thought, well, I'll write those stories because it just seemed like those are the stories that are out Everyone in the real world. Read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the same with like, and even just the media you, you digest in general. Like I, I grew up in Miami and so I would see you know, watching movies like Home Alone, where they have snow in the wintertime and these brownstone <laughs> homes. Yeah. There was always this idea that that world was real, but mine wasn't. And so when I got to college, I realized that I was still doing that in some ways. My mentor really caught on to that really quickly. And she would just, we had these really great conversations in which she would ask like about my family, about why we came to the U.S., just about our background. And and I realized there are several stories there that are, are worth exploring and are not only worth exploring, but they're real and they're just as valid. And so she she really empowered me to embrace to embrace what I had to say and to find my own voice and not just what I thought other people thought it should be. I'm wondering maybe if you could tell me a little bit about that history, you know, the coming from Peru or your family. Yeah, so we so I was born in Peru in Lima and um, we came to the US when I was about four. And during that time, so this was 88, which was really when Peru was in the middle of the internal conflict between the 80s and the 90s, which was, there were several insurgent terrorism groups and a lot of violence, a lot of like social unrest. Mm. And um, during that time, when we were living there, my grandfather was kidnapped for ransom because those were things that happened very often at the time. There was a lot of organized crime. Mm. And... You know, he was held for 60 days before my father was able to negotiate and bring him back. Yeah. Or and not just my father, but we also had the help of several like authorities and things like that. So I didn't learn about it until I was much older. And we mm. didn't talk about it very much in my family. And so there was this idea of, and it wasn't even secrecy. It was actually just kind of brushed over. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that that meant it wasn't very important. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized that actually, no, it's probably because it's, you know, that's also a way that we cope sometimes, right? It was like too painful to think about all the time. Yeah. And so I, and, but I really often thought about it and not just that particular incident, but just what, what does it mean to have fled your country, a country that you love when it becomes so dangerous and traumatic Mm. for you? Because I know like nobody wants to leave their home, right? Nobody wants to leave the one country they know and all their family and everyone they love. And then and go to a new one to learn a new language and a new culture and feel like a stranger. So what would it take? And so mm-hmm. I was very, I've always wondered about that because my parents were the age that I am now oh. when they left. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I think, well, what would it take for me to do that today? Yeah. So I I, I feel like I always end up writing about that in some ways because <laughs> yeah. that, that came out a lot in my second novel as well. <clears throat> I feel like it's just something, I'll just speak for myself, it's something that I just take for granted, kind of the relative safety of my life and living in the United States. And I just think of, I was just reading something about Syria. They were talking about like 10 million people had been displaced from their homes. And it's just like part of the story of humanity that is constantly happening all over the world. And I don't know, I feel like we're pretty insulated from it. Yeah. Um, but you experienced that. Your family experienced that. Wow. Yeah. And I see, you know, there's things that you've mentioned specifically that were in your book that I guess that's what informed that book, right? That yeah. That story. No, absolutely. And yeah, I think I've, like, I've always, especially with that story, it was really thinking about what does this do to a family? How does such a traumatic event influence not just the person who was kidnapped, but 
the the rest of the family because they're victims too in in, in different ways. Maybe talk about your first book, like kind of just give a oh yeah <laughs> general overview of the story. So, Chasing the Sun is about a woman who's kidnapped for ransom in Lima, Peru, in the nineties, in the early nineties, and she and her husband already have a very fractured and frail marriage to begin with before she's kidnapped. And so now that she's gone and he's trying to bring her home and trying to negotiate with the kidnappers, it really, I, I guess I wanted to examine what happens to a relationship and a marriage and a family that's already, that's already under so much pressure. What happens to it yeah. when something like a kidnapping happens? Because I think we think of a lot of things in life happening in a vacuum. It, it might have been a different story had they had this perfect marriage and and she gets kidnapped and he would do absolutely anything for her. But I was more interested in the ways that life happens one on top of the other. And so what happens when maybe in some way he discovers that there's limits to how far he'll go? Or maybe, or even if it's not that um, straightforward, but what if it just causes him to really take a re an honest look at their relationship finally in this mm -hmm. moment that it's being taken away from them. Yeah. So how did it affect your family other than just probably being one of the impetus to move out of the country, like with your grandfather? You know, I, I spoke with them about it several times because halfway through writing the book, I realized that the reason I was writing it was because I was not getting answers from them, but mm. that, I also wanted to at least try to, and not even for the sake of the book, but just for the sake of breaking that barrier of silence and trying to get to an honest place. Mm -hmm. And so I did, and I spoke to several of my family members, and I realized that, I mean, by this time it had been 30 years or so. Yeah. And so they, in a way, were almost, they were very forthcoming with their stories. And I think there's power in somebody wanting to hear your story and you being able to tell it, at least on your terms, too. Yeah. Um, and having had enough time to process things. So it, it became a very, um, it, it really brought us together, I think, in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. I learned a lot about my father and my mom and my uncle and even my sister, who was very young. She was five at the time. <clears throat> she had just the small memories that people hang on to. Yeah. And that was very fascinating to me. What would be an example? You know, I feel like that one's hers. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't mention it as much because that, yeah, she shared it with me, but I, there's like limits to what I will share because that was the other part of it. Like you're writing a story about your family and I was very conscious of not making it about a man or, you know, a, a man like my grandfather who is kidnapped oh, right. and I didn't want it to be like, like me literally just writing my family's story because so much of that is theirs. And yeah. a lot of it is also mine, right? But not not that much of it, because I don't remember a lot of it. I was only three. And so, like, for me, creating Marabella's character and creating this new family felt like a way to at least explore this without being too intrusive to yeah. them. And not only that, but I wanted it to be bigger than my family, because these kidnappings that happened... They happened all the time, not just in Peru, but in several South American countries during this time. And so I didn't, I didn't want it to be just about my family. I wanted it to be bigger than that because there was a certain, there is a certain amount of, I, I call it like a culture of terror, actually, because like growing up in Miami, when I would speak to people who had come from Latin America, mm. um, there was never a sense of surprise if you say, oh, we had a kidnapping in our family because so many had experienced the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it took me many years to realize that was probably another reason why I wouldn't write about it because I thought, well, it's such a common experience. Maybe mm. it's not worth writing about. And then one day I thought, well, actually, if it's such a common experience, maybe that's why we should be writing about it and yeah. we should be able to talk about it. And and I think there's something about like there's something really powerful to writing those stories and to be into bringing them out in the open like that, especially the ones that are painful. Yeah, and especially if you're talking about. Like you were saying in the beginning with your writing, you were kind of thinking more in terms of like trying to replicate what was here in America and the lives that you saw. But it's much more powerful to you for you to pull this story from your country of origin and your family that n most people wouldn't understand or know about here. That's much more powerful, you know, I think. Well, I think a lot of people would understand um, because there's still like... Because A, there's several people who have shared that experience having come from Latin America as well. Yeah. And B, I think there's there's still so many different elements of, well, 
you love your family, you would do anything to protect them. I mean, that's something that we could all understand. And how do you think going through that experience, even as a child and having to move here, how do you think that has formed who you are now? I mean, it wasn't, like I mentioned, it wasn't really talked about until I was like 12 or so. In a way, writing this book felt a lot like recovering family history that I didn't know about. And so it hadn't yet had a chance to influence me too much. Ah, uh, okay. Whereas, for example, writing my second book felt much more personal because I was pulling from personal experiences mm. of having grown up in the U.S. as an immigrant in a community of immigrants and, you know, understanding the ways that our experiences are very similar and also the ways that they're different. But you're saying the experience of researching the book, writing the book, has been healing for you and your family. Oh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think in, in many ways it was. You know, I know that in talk, like, talking to my father and my parents, yeah, I, I think that it helped me realize that, you know, the strength that they showed having gone through that. And time certainly helped to let them process that a little more. Yeah. But, and what kind of feedback did they give you after they read the book? They were very, like, they loved it. They were very proud. It was actually much more, it was a more happy experience than I thought it would be because more than anything, they were just proud and they knew this was something that I'd always dreamed of doing. And I think that it helped build a little more understanding between us. Because the other thing was that I really wanted to, I don't know, to kind of at least be able to say, you know, I understand why you did this. Like, I understand why you left and why you did all this for us. So how did that book change your life? Like after you wrote it, it came out, like what was the experience of putting out your first book and kind of going on that first tour? What kind of what you're doing now? Like, and since then, like, what was that experience like? Well, it was pretty amazing. I mean, that first book, it is life changing in ways that you don't expect and then ways that you maybe thought, but definitely not in that way of your whole day to day life is different. I always say that it changed some things, but then other things it didn't at all. And that's a good thing. You know, I remember the day that my book came out, um, I woke up and we had just bought a house actually. So things all happen at once, right? Mm. And so we woke up in this house and I go to have breakfast and because the house was new and my dog still hadn't figured it out, I look at her and she had just had an accident (laughs) in the house and I'm there cleaning up and I'm like, okay, this is how life goes on. Yeah. Life totally goes on. (laughs) She was like, look what I made. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You're like, I'm a published author now. I'm I'm not dealing with that. (laughs) Still going to pick up the poop. Um, (laughs) No, the, the book tour was incredible because I mean, especially that first one, because it was the first time you see your book and the words you wrote, having this taking on their own life, you know, getting to meet readers, realizing that like I remember at one point this one woman came up to me and she had a copy of her book and she had notes all over it she had highlighted and bookmarked and oh, put, wow. put little sticky notes on it and I just thought that was so fascinating that yeah. that she had done that with my book and in her home somewhere and on, on her time like people take their time to read and spend time with your words that's really humbling and incredible um, and not only that but they bring their own experiences to it so nobody reads the same book in the same way yeah it's just like this strangely intimate act between the author and the reader, and yet you won't you won't ever know exactly how they imagine it. Yeah. Um, but so re- talking to readers was really great. It also really presented a lot of good op- opportunities for me. Like I ended up joining the faculty, the Master of Fine Arts faculty at Regis University mm-hmm. for their creative writing program, and that oh. was really a wonderful thing to kind of have that be for full circle, like having like me having had these amazing mentors and now I get to hopefully mentor other yeah. writers and help them tell their stories. And yeah, I, I think the first book tour, it lasted several months and then, you know, one day it quiets down and then you go back to, to your own life. And in that way too, it was really nice because I, I did realize pretty soon that I, I think that when your dreams come true in terms of your art, it's not going to fix everything. It's not going to change who you are. It's not going to solve every problem that you've ever had. It is, it, it, is, it is an amazingly wonderful thing, but we can't, like, to put all the expectation on it of this will be, like, this magic solution to yeah. everything. It, it really, once, once you reach that height, then it just, it's a long way to fall if you've put all that on it. Yeah. And so I, I remember, and I talked to other authors about this, how they had said that they kind of got a little depressed after the book tour, because book tour is like this series of just highlights of, you know, like 
you, when you talk about like the highlights of life and then yeah. the everyday stuff, right? And so you have all these highlights, especially now in the age of like Instagram and everything. You have all these cool pictures to share and you with like, yeah, you, know, you get all this stars. adoration or whatever. Right, all the reviews and everything, um, which again is wonderful, but it, it it's not a reflection of what things are day to day. And so having talked to friends like that who would tell me like, yeah, no, it, it, it can be hard to just go back to your day to day. I tried to like mentally prepare myself for that. Mm. And I think because of that, I was just very excited to realize like, hey, actually, at the end of this, the reason I did this was because I loved the writing. And so when all that kind of calmed down, I just got back to it and I started writing a new book. And, and it's true, like those moments of, you know, sitting in front of a page and not knowing what you're going to write. And then this character kind of comes out mm. of that and, and suddenly you have this scene that feels really good and that feels like it's that it's saying something you were trying to say and you didn't know you were trying to say it before that. That's really what it's about. <laughs> and yeah. that's what keeps that's what keeps me going and that's what makes all of the other things like worth it. Yeah. You know, when I was reading your first book, it, I just kept thinking like, oh, the imagination that you have just to create this whole world in your mind and have some way that you can kind of keep each character's personality so defined and kind of separate from each other. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, have you always had that kind of an imagination? I mean, is that what it takes? I mean, it just seems like oh. it's so deep, you know, just kind of the detail. That's so funny. Um, I think it's really, I think of writing more of a discipline. I mean, it is like, obviously you need the imagination and you need all these different ways of, like what we call it is like just the craft of writing, right? Like yeah. character development and then all the things that contribute to that, like dialogue and plot. But it's not easy. And mm. and I think that's one of the things that people assume is that if you're a writer, that means writing, writing comes easily to you and it doesn't at all for me. But I just keep going because I love it so much that I love it enough to just not stop, <laughs> to yeah. just not give up. And so when I sit down, sometimes there's times where I write these horrible scenes and then... I just have to get them down and then I'll have to know that months later I'll revise it and rewrite it. And even just with character development, like I find that my first draft of something is very bare bones. So it doesn't necessarily have the different subplots involved. It doesn't even have the same, like the characters maybe aren't fully formed and I don't really know who they are yet. Mm. And then I work on it in layers. So then the next draft I'll start to give it a little more richness and I'll start to even rewrite or rearrange things and then and and to start like digging deeper into who they are and just ask questions about their motivations and about like about their history because history informs so much of our present and it just happens over a long time it's a very long process years <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so i just i like to say that cuz i don't think anyone should be discouraged to think I, we're all we all have creativity in us right and we're all very imaginative people but we also all have these voices that tell us we're not. And so even me, like, even when you said that, like, oh, you have this imagination, I think, really? <laughs> <laughs> which, but it, which is ridiculous, because of course I do. I mean, obviously, we all, like, you know, I just don't give myself credit for it. Yeah. And I don't think any of us do. Yeah. How do you react when someone says to you, like, oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body? Like, do you just like, oh, come on. Oh. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure yeah. you've heard people say that. Oh, yeah, and I just absolutely. always think, no, you're just limiting yourself, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's where the discipline comes in. Because I do. I think that everyone does. Um, but I also think I've not, maybe not everyone will want to pursue it to the degree that it needs to be pursued. Yeah. With the same amount of persistence and discipline and really like commitment to learning the craft and to, to doing it, like to doing the hard work. Yeah. And that doesn't just apply to writing. I think it applies to any form of art. Where do you get your discipline and drive and, you know, perseverance from, do you think? Like, what motivates you? Hmm. You just, like, feel like you have these yeah. stories, they just have to come out somehow? Like, you just feel driven to tell stories? Yeah, I mean, I feel best when I'm writing. You know, even going back to when I was little, and it was just something that I would do, and it was just something that I would do in order to process my thoughts at the end of the day and just process the world, you know, what I thought yeah. about it. So you started out journaling mainly. Yeah, yeah okay. mainly. And then some poetry as well. And um, and then I went to fiction in college. I, I think that drive is really just... It, when I was writing the first book, I would always wake up really early in the morning to write it because I didn't have time throughout the day I was working. And I'm not a morning person at all, so it was really hard for me to get up. But I would always tell myself, like, 
this isn't going to happen unless you do the work. Mm. And I know that sounds really kind of simple and obvious, but I just try to push myself that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that a lot of that just comes from even just seeing my parents, the amount of things that they made happen growing up. It was really inspiring. What, what would be an example? Well, you know, it, I think it takes a lot to move from a different country and start a new life. Like we had family, we had a really great support system. We were luckier in that regards than most. But even so, I there were periods when, like, I, I remember my mom would sew things for, um, and she would put flyers around our apartment and, be, and tell people, "Well, I'll sew like anything you want." Oh, and, wow. and so, you know, there's like kind of, and then you know, eventually, my father is a pediatrician, so he had to come to the U.S., learn the language, get recertified, do his residency again, his starting for, from scratch. Yeah, starting wow. from scratch over and over. Um, and my mom was always the one, you know, as he was starting from scratch, she was also the one doing all the work behind the scenes, right? Of just making sure that that we were cared for, that we felt supported and, and nurtured. And so I just think seeing them, I don't, as a child, none of that escaped me. I, I was very much aware of how hard things were for them, but I was also very aware of how hard they were working and how much they just pushed through. And And even when I was little, I remember my mom one day telling me, well, you and your sister are going to have to get scholarships if you want to go to college. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like six. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was just, my mom was this very realistic, uh, practical person. I mean, yeah. she still is. Uh, and I, I really, I thank her for that because it just made me very early on be like, okay, well, I guess I'll just have to be, I'll have to make this work. And so they yeah. really instilled a lot of self-discipline in us. Cause I don't remember growing up, like my parents ever really being behind my back about, my sister and I doing our homework or anything like that. We just kind of figured out, we just, we would see them doing their work and yeah. we thought, well, I guess we have to do ours. Yeah. And they like, set a good example with their yeah. work ethic. No, absolutely. Wow. So what was the process like writing this book that just came out? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, so I started writing, um, everyone knows you go home. Um, back in, I think it was 2013. Mm. It was interesting because Two days before that, I had heard that my publisher, they had already, you know, acquired Chasing the Sun at that point. At one point, my agent thought, let's try to pitch them this other book, like the first one that still hadn't sold, right? Yeah. Um, because they'd never seen it. And so we had sent them that book. And in my head, I was thinking, well, of course, if they love Chasing the Sun, they'll love this book, you know? Yeah. And we got an email saying that they passed on it. And um, this was like at the end of October of 2013. And it was really, it, it was you know, the rejection never stops being hard. Yeah. I remember walking around and being really bummed about it. And then I thought, well, I guess I just need to start writing a new one. Yeah. Um, and so I did. And, and that, and I didn't know what I wanted to, to write, but it was about to become, it was about to be November 1st, which is um, my wedding anniversary. Mm -hmm. And it's also when the day of the dead starts because November 1st is day, day of the dead is November 1st and 2nd. And, Throughout the years, people, when they learned that my wedding coincides with Day of the Dead, they would sometimes say, oh, that's so funny. And I and I realized that the reason they said that was because, so, you know, Day of the Dead traditionally is um, celebrated throughout Mexico and Central America. And it's when the spirits of your loved ones, it's the one day of the year that they visit you. Yeah. And so I remember thinking to myself, well, oh, right, that's why they think it's funny, because imagine having the spirits of your loved ones come visit you on your wedding and then on your anniversary and oh. every anniversary that follows. And so that's really where this, the idea, the, like the first spark of an idea for everyone knows you go home came from like that question of, well, what if, you know, what if there's um, a man and a woman who are married on the day of the dead? And what if the spirit of their father-in-law shows up on their wedding day? And from there it became, because like once I started writing, I realized, well, actually the groom doesn't want to see his father, which became to me like, well, why doesn't he want to see his father? Why wouldn't you want to speak to the spirit of your, of your dead father? And um, it's like all these, it, it always starts out with all these questions when I'm writing. Yeah. And I kind of just see where that takes me. And so I remember I actually started writing that on November 1st because on social media, there's this thing called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. And I thought, well, let me try NaNoWriMo. Um, <laughs> and so the idea is that you're supposed to write a whole novel, at least a rough draft of a novel in a month. I was not able to do that. I wrote maybe the first 7,000 words or so, which is maybe almost, I don't know how many pages, 15, maybe 17, 18. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, at least helped me realize like, oh wait, there's still a story here. And I really want to keep going with it at, 
at whatever pace that may be, right? Which I have to find my own pace. And a lot of my writing process isn't just about writing. It's about letting ideas just kind of marinate and letting myself think about them. So everyone knows you go home evolved into this story about a man and a woman who are married on the day of the dead and they're visited by the spirit of the bride's estranged father-in-law. And because no one will talk to him, to Omar, which is his name, Isabel's the only one that ends up talking to him year after year. And she's trying to find out why he keeps coming back and like, what it is that he is hoping for through his visits. And in the meantime, she and her husband, who are you know only recently married, they end up taking in their teenage nephew who crosses the border from Mexico into Texas. And so now they're, in a way, raising a teenager as newlyweds, and she's trying to find out how these two crossings, like this, the physical crossing of her mm. nephew and the spiritual crossing of her father-in-law, like how those two are connected. And she's trying to discover the family history. Sounds really good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so how long did it take you fully to write the book? Probably what? about two and a half years or so. And this one in particular, there was a long, a long period in which I didn't write at all, actually. I was just, like I said, I had only written the first few pages. And, and then I just had to take some time and think, okay, so I have a premise, but what is it that I'm really trying to say? And I think those are two different things. And the more I thought about it and the more like these ideas of being in two separate, you know, world, the living and the dead, and kind of this idea of being caught in between. The more I thought of that, the more I realized it's a book about immigration. And it's a book. And the reason that it kept coming back to it was because I've always wondered so much about what it's like to be caught in this in between Mm. of, you know, having left your home in search of a new one, and not really feeling like you completely belong in either one. Yeah. Anymore. And it's something that, you know, I grew up really aware of and seeing the way my mom often tried to, like, my mom was the one who navigated the immigration system for us. And she was always the one filling out all the applications for our paperwork and everything. And I just saw how much that weighed on her yeah. growing up. And, and I, I don't know, I just, I wanted to write the stories that I'd seen growing up of being part of this immigrant community. And, and certainly we all come from different countries and we have different experiences, but there's all these common, there's, there are so many things that we shared in common. And I, I, I just wanted to, to bring that out on the page and, and not only just, not only the struggles of it, because I think something that we think a lot about a lot, especially with any sort of marginalized community is that we think a lot of the ways that they struggle, but we often, and in, in focusing on that alone, we overlook all the joys and the triumphs and, and the courage and, and even just the ordinariness of everyday life that is also beautiful in its own way. Yeah. When I was writing, I just ended up bringing that out and it just, there's actually a lot of joy to me in writing that, and especially in writing some of those those scenes of the more daily life and the, seeing just the way that like everyone makes do with what they have. And so, like for me, I would look back and like some of the best memories I have are just very simple ones, but they're because I could see my parents just trying to make sure that they're giving us the best with what they had. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're just real people, yeah. just living normal lives. What kind of it makes me think about the kind of research that you do for your books, like for your first one or this, the new one? Like, what's the research like? It's a mixture of a lot. Of, I, I read a lot. I read a lot of books um, on the topics that I'm writing about. I watch documentaries and movies, and um, I do interview. Like for everyone knows, you go home. I interviewed several people who worked in in some way or another, like I interviewed immigration lawyers and psychologists who specialized in that. I interviewed like school counselors who lived in, in communities that had a very large um, immigrant population. Mm. At one point, I also interviewed a couple of people who had direct experience having crossed the border. So the way I feel about research, though, is that I feel like there still has to be, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable um, writing about something that I didn't feel I already had a lot of life experience and direct knowledge from. Because at that point, then I just feel like I would just be only interviewing people for their stories so that I could write them. And I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing like that. like journalism. More. Right. Well, that is more like journalism. And, and I feel like with fiction, it's not like, I'm not just looking at someone's life experience and thinking, oh, that would make a good story, you oh. know, like a, a, a page turning story or something. Like, no, I think the reason I write the books that I write is because for me, they feel necessary. And there's a story 
there to that to me, I need to get out. And sometimes that involves research. But even when I do speak to people who are sharing their stories with me, I try to respect that it's their story. And the best I can do is listen to them and then use that as a point in which to imagine what it must have been like for them and for other people like them. And so then I I try to create other characters who are maybe not exactly like them, but um, who would have shared similar experiences. Because I think of fiction as something that is an exercise in empathy. I was (laughs) just going to say, you have to be pretty empathic to do what you're saying. That's what I try to do. And yeah, I I mean, I do think that's the beauty of fiction, right? Is that you imagine yourself in other people's place and, and, and try to experience or understand experiences beyond yours. And what do you hope for people to get out of your new book? What would you want them to come away with? You know, I avoid saying that because <laughs> I want it to be what they do. You know, yeah. it's like... You're not trying to manipulate anybody. Yeah, I don't. I I mean, and certainly there might be things that I hope, but I don't even... Yeah, I, I just avoid saying them mm-hmm. because I think that ultimately it's about what they're going to bring. And even if I have hopes of what they'll bring, <laughs> it's not my place to tell them or even kind of influence that. But you are in a way, just by the choices you've made and what to write. I mean, there is kind of a direction to it. I mean, it's, I mean, if you want someone to have some kind of a awareness or realization about the experience of an immigrant crossing the border or something like that, I mean, that's could be valuable to some people. It could be, um, but I also think there's, in the same way, it could be valuable to people who've had that same experience mm. and see themselves in that. And so I don't necessarily write in the hopes of it. And I would say that if I'm writing for anyone, it's not necessarily for people specifically who haven't shared it, that experience. It's really more for people who have, because I think back to like how much I wrote, like even my first book and looking at my parents and seeing everything they went through. And it was more of my way of saying like, hey, like none of this went unnoticed. Mm. Um, And so I think of my second book in that same way. Like so many people will say, oh, you're trying to humanize immigrants and i'm like well i that implies that i need to be the one to humanize them when they're already human you know and maybe the people who should show humanity are the ones who like are are the ones who are not seeing that humanity and who are asking them to prove it somehow yeah and so i just don't i think that a lot of times especially because we have in the publishing industry it is predominantly white and it's predominantly um you know I think a lot of books out there are tailored with a specific audience in mind. And I've certainly yeah. had people say to me like, Oh, we want this book to be a bit like to appeal to a more mainstream audience. And I find that interesting because what they really mean when they say mainstream is that they want it to appeal to a white audience. Yeah. Um, and I think that we've, we already have so many books, <clears throat> excuse me. It's even going back to the books that I was saying I grew up with that are specifically tailored for that audience. And then we assume so because we've we've gotten so used to that being like the default audience that even when someone like me or a person of color like writes a book, it's assumed that that's our the audience that we're thinking of. Mm. Um, but then people forget the other audience and the audience that we might actually be writing for. And it's not to say that I don't want you know everyone to read my book, of course, but um, just in terms of like whose experiences are you trying to reflect or. Who are you trying to give this to, like present this to as like saying, hey, this was made for you. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something that we take for granted, that we mm-hmm. assume that it, you know, of course, like it would be great if someone who, if somebody who maybe hasn't thought a lot about what that experience is like and hasn't really spent a lot of time with immigrants you know, of course, it would be wonderful if this in some way leaves an impression. But that's not like the only reason I wrote it. It's certainly not like the main one. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people assume it is. Yeah. So I, I try to um, to make that clear that no, actually, not everything has to be made <laughs> for that audience. And yeah. It's not the only thing that we're thinking about. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, thanks for sh- setting me straight on that. Oh, no. Yeah. I really, I do appreciate that. I do want to be respectful of your time. And there is this like one more thing that I kind of wanted to talk about. So you have a blog on your website and you have essentially like one post. Is it like one post a year? And it's like things I learned. Yeah. Right. Like how did that come about? Like when did you start doing that? I think the first one I came out with was maybe 2012. Okay. Maybe. Um, So it actually used to be a much like more regular blog. Okay. Um, I'm not criticizing no, no. that. Oh part. no, no, not at all. No, but I'm, <laughs> no. The reason I say that is because now there's only just that one post. Yeah. Um, 
I used to, I was blogging for quite a bit, like between 2010 and 14 or so, maybe 15. And so amongst that, like I would blog like maybe every week. And then at the end of the year, I would do this post that was, you know, if it was 2012, I'd say 12 things I learned in 2012. And if it was 2013, it was 13 things I learned. I recently updated my website. (laughs) Okay. And when I went to migrate the blog, everything got lost. Oh, ouch. (laughs) So what I managed to recover at least were the yearly lists. Okay. Uh, which I was really grateful for because it's nice to see this progression over time, right? Uh, and so now it's like my this little tradition I do, and it's just a way to reflect back on the year. It's a just, great exercise, yeah. really. I think everyone should probably do it. Yeah. Let's see. We'll look at the list from 2017. Maybe you could uh, comment on any of these, why they came about. You can't obsess your way out of a problem. Yeah. Well, I do. I obsess about things all the time. Or even just, for example, when, when I'm writing, like I can't just only obsess about it. Eventually I have to write my way out of the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then also like when I think of all the different, like for me, I, I think this what this was 2017. Yeah. Gosh, where did that one come from? I feel like everything. <laughs> Are there it's any, hard well, to glance to know at exactly. that and tell me if there's any that really jump out at you as being kind of the most meaningful. and Or if you have the a story about one of them that's like about a moment or oh okay what inspired it you know so much of this list that i'm looking back is probably in reaction to the election oh um because this is 2017 and even when i thought like you can't obsess you out of a problem like you know for me the election was incredibly difficult because you know we had um we have a president who ran on anti-immigrant sentiment and was embraced you know so so much of that it was this questioning of like well was this really this welcoming country we thought it was um and also realizing your own this like how much of that i probably i should have been more aware of to be honest like Mm. i i I sometimes look back and think why did the election feel like such an awakening when there's these were things that have always been happening and even even like people will often say to me that like for this for example the book everyone knows you go home like They'll say, "Oh, you wrote it in reaction to um, ah, right to the election." And I think, well, no, actually, I started writing it in 2013. I was finished. I finished writing it even before the election happened, yeah. um, because, like, again, publishing works so slowly that um, the book was actually done before um, any of this started happening, before the campaign even started happening. And so, these are problems that they've always been there, and mm-hmm. even I had always noticed them. But you know, but then I, you wonder, do I live in a bubble? Right? I, did I? How did I miss this? Like Certain elements, yes. Like, there's certain things that I thought, like, I think to myself, well, how did I miss that? But also, when I look at the anti-immigrant sentiment, it didn't necessarily surprise me at all. It was just seeing it come forward in such a strong yeah. way and seeing all those fears come to fruition all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, was was a really difficult thing. And so 2017 was a year where I tried very hard to get more involved in my role as a, as a citizen, as like in civic duties, you know, of trying to um, to speak more to our legislator, legislators. Like living in Austin, we have the power to actually go to the Capitol when they're voting on yeah. bills and register our opposition or not, or, um, or support. And I joined like a group of um, writers who are also activists and we're all trying to do everything that we could in our own small ways. And so a lot of this list, like for example, number two is if, if we each do what we can, when we can, honestly and wholeheartedly, we are collectively always doing something. And, and I think that can apply to so many things. But for me, it definitely came out of realizing, out of always feeling helpless. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then realizing, well, no, but there's something I can do. I can do this small part. And if I do this small part and someone else is doing this small part, then altogether we can actually maybe make a difference. And then number three being there is no guilt and pleasure. Joy is necessary. Always joy is worth fighting for. You know, there's moments that it's not always, like, especially for me, Last year, it felt like I was always trying to fight something <laughs> to the point that even moments where I was just like really happy and not necessarily being at the Capitol or, you know, writing an op-ed in support of the things that I believed in, that the administration that I felt was trying to take away. <laughs> yeah. uh, there were times where I thought like, well, I need to be doing more. Um, I shouldn't just be out enjoying myself. And then I realized, oh. no, actually, this is part of it, right? Like the things that we do for happiness are revolutionary in their own way. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so, yeah, like, number 10 was speak when you think no one is listening, do when you think it won't matter, if nothing else, be a voice that doesn't let the silence win. That's just something that's really important to me, because we each have a voice, and and to not say anything is also just enabling. There's no such thing as being apolitical, 
you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't believe that. And I, because there's either being the idea of being apolitical only means that you have the privilege to not, to not feel affected by politics. Mm. But then that means that those politics have always worked in your favor. And so to, to be silent on, on certain things that don't affect you, it's just, it's just enabling those things to continue happening and then to possibly affect others in very different and uh, more negative ways. And so for me, I just, I very much, I think it's important that each of us use our voices. Yeah. That's, that feels really powerful for me, for you to say that, because I feel like I have been kind of apolitical most of my life. And I guess maybe I do have a privileged position in some ways that is almost too, it's too easy to do that. Mm. You know, I definitely will think a lot about that now and figure out ways that I could do something different Mm. and get more involved. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Um, So this one's actually kind of funny, but I put number 16 was for the first time, the pain of a wasp sting, then seven more all at once. I I went on a writer's retreat, like, I think back in February. I forget what. It was was in springtime. And um, I had this really peaceful moment on like this wooden deck where I was like, I'm going to do some sun salutations and some yoga. And then I, I went and I sat down on the first stair, the first step, and immediately felt like this huge pain coming up <laughs> on my behind, <laughs> on my butt. And it turned out I had sat on a wasp hive for nest or, yeah. or because that it, the, the hive was on the back of that wooden board and um, they bit me all over. And so sometimes with these lists, I, I, I'll add any random things that I learned. So it's not everything has to be this very profound thing, but I added that because I was like, I'd never been stung by a bee or a wasp. And here I am getting stung eight times. And I guess that's something I learned. I learned how that feels. I, let's see. I I think for me, like the f- number 12, which was no one needs you to know all the answers. They need you to be unafraid to find them. Mm. That one was really important for me because it's like uh, last year was the year I started teaching that in and of itself is its own education, right? Like how to teach people. And, and I did learn that. I think when I first started teaching, one of my fears was I don't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought, well, wait, nobody expects you to know everything. Um, and I, I, I think I know more than I, than I give myself credit for just because of the experiences that I've had and, you know, having written these books and, you know, having lived as a writer and it's okay to be able to say, actually, I don't know that the answer to that, but I'm, I'm going to find it like, and to, to kind of just approach these things with an open mind and with like a, a spirit of exploration and discovery. And I think of that so much because even, you know, I think that we're in a time where we're finally talking about things like, like sexual harassment with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. We're finally talking about racism and privilege and, you know, with the protests that are going now on now about gun violence, which mm-hmm. also, you know, in which I believe firmly needs to be intersectional. So it should also be about like how gun violence affects um, communities of color in a very different way and why we're listening to the Parkland kids in this very, um, suddenly they have this huge platform as they should, but why didn't, for example, the children, like the kids who are fighting in Black Lives Matter also being mm-hmm. amplified in that same way. And so we're having these conversations and we don't all have the answers. We do, like we're not all going to have the answers because we're all essentially students on this journey, right? Like some of us will maybe not have been aware of a lot of the realities of others who don't share the same life experiences as we do, but at least we're learning them. And um I tell people all the time that if we're at least we're learning that, then we need to be okay with the fact that we're sometimes going to make mistakes. Yeah. We're sometimes going to say the wrong thing. We might sometimes make the wrong assumptions and people will call us out and that's fine because that means that we're learning and yeah. that we should be grateful for that opportunity to to learn and grow from that. And and so that kind of ties into this idea of that we don't know all the answers but we need to be unafraid to find them. Yeah. And being unafraid means sometimes it'll be uncomfortable, but again you push through that. Yeah. And that's kind of the only way we keep going and we keep growing through it. Yeah. Well, I've learned a lot talking with you today, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Um, Tell everyone again about your new book and where to find it and your website and all that. (laughs) So the book is called Everyone Knows You Go Home, and uh, you can learn more about it on my website, which is nataliasylvester.com. And you're going to be going on book tour, and then have you already started working on your next book? 
I've been working on a new book. I have, but it's been, it's in the very rough, rough yeah. stages. So. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again. Yeah. Thank I really you. appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.